Heavenly Father, we come before you prayerfully and thankfully as always, delighting in your gracious love and the gift of your salvation. Lead us now by your spirit, Lord God, into all truth. May these things we ponder be to the praise of your glory and the edification of your son's body. May they equip us to be the people you've called us to be and to do the things you've called us to do. In the name of the one who saved us, your own son, Jesus, in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, turn with me, please, to the book of Psalms. A book of Psalms. We're continuing in our study, Messiah and Prophecy in Psalms. We're going to go to Psalm 57 now, 57 and 58 tonight, Lord willing. Let's begin. Psalm 57, for the choir director, uh, said to Al-Tashet, Al-Miktam of David, of David, when he fled from Saul in the cave. Now, to understand the background of this, we have to understand this is what David was facing at the cave of Ein Gedi, at the cave of Ein Gedi, when he cut off the corner of Saul's garment. He could have uh, killed Saul, but he didn't. Uh, Saul was obviously aware of his own sin and transgression against David, and he realized David spared his life, but he just continued his campaign against him, even though there was a false repentance. So this was a psalm made at a time when David could have avenged himself, but didn't. Not that he liked Saul, but Saul was God's anointed, and he knew that God would deal with Saul. And it was a time when Saul seemed to renege on his intent to murder David after he'd already murdered Abiatar, the high priest, and others. But of course, he didn't. He was too far gone. What was going through David's mind at this time? He was running all over. He was hiding. He would have been easy enough to find at the cave of Ein Gedi for the simple reason that if you've ever been there, it's nothing but desert. There's the Dead Sea. It's the lowest place on the face of the earth, and there's nothing but desert, except for this green stripe coming down the mountain to the Dead Sea, where there is a brook. When you go up the mountain following it, you come to a pool. And that pool has a lower cave and an upper cave fur inside the rock. And it's an absolutely beautiful oasis where there are gazelles, where there are rock badgers, and around the brook there are butterflies and all kinds of birds. It's the only place where there's any life anywhere in the whole Negev, on that side of the Negev, there's absolutely nothing except for this one beautiful oasis, Ein Gedi. Um, I've been there, of course, many times. And uh, what a wonderful place to hide. But he wouldn't have been difficult to find. He wouldn't have been difficult to find, for there was no other place to hide that could sustain life. So he's in a, in a corner, sort of. He's in a corner. There was nowhere else for David to go, and Saul was looking for him. Now, again, it is a picture of David as the leader or founder of the house of David, founding member of the house of David through whom the royal lineage would come. In other words, a type of Christ, Jesus, the son of David. And it begins. Now, 
I take it we're all familiar with the story of what happened at the cave of Ein Gedi. Okay. He's in the cave. Be gracious to me, O God. Be gracious to me, for my soul takes refuge in thee. And in the shadow of thy wings, I will take refuge until destruction passes by. I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth loving kindness and his truth. My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue sharp, a sharp sword. Be exalted above the heavens, O God, and let thy glory be over all the earth. That is a chorus that many Christians sing. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. My heart is steadfast. Oh God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing, yes, I will sing praises. Awake my glory, awake harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to thee, O Lord, among the people. I will sing praises to thee among the nations. For thy loving kindness is great to the heavens and thy truth to the clouds. Be exalted, O Lord, above the heavens, O God, and let thy glory be over the earth. Again, because it is such a very rich and popular chorus that we sing and worship, that is why most Christians are familiar with this particular psalm. They sing it as a worship song, and appropriately so. But let's understand it in its context and its sitzimleben and its typology. First of all, David as a type of the Messiah in a desperate place. He's hiding in a cave because of what his enemies have done to him uh, and are in the process of doing to him. David comes out of the cave alive. When he went in there, Saul was coming for him, but he came out alive. Well, we know what happened. Jesus was put into a cave, a tomb, a burial, a, a tomb. The, the burial tombs of the second century were a sarcophagus inside of a, a carved cave. They were not natural caves generally. They were caves that could be either natural or they could be dug out of the stone. But we see David sealed up in this cave with no way out but God because of his enemies, and he foreshadows Christ, who's in this thing, okay? I will cry to God most high, to God who accomplishes all things. Jesus on the cross was crying out to his father, who we thought had forsook him in his humanity. He will send from heaven and save me. He reproaches him who tramples upon me. God will send forth loving kindness and his truth, okay? My soul is among lions. I must lie among those who breathe forth fire, even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrow, and their tongue a sharp sword. Again, we go back to the trial of Jesus, to the Herodian trial, 
we go back to the imperial trial before Pilate, and we go back to the religious trial before the Sanhedrin. Their tongues were swords against him. They were surrounding him like lions. This is reminiscent, of course, of Psalm 22. He calls for God to be exalted in these circumstances. And it is his declaration in verse 6 that those who have dug this pit for him will have fallen in themselves. Okay. Jesus as God, as we looked at last week, could have used his divine power. Or he could have asked his father to save him, three legions of angels. He could have killed his enemies. Jesus could have slayed Caiaphas, Ananias, Herod, Pilate. He could have slain Judas, his accusers. He could have slain all of them, but he didn't. He said, God is going to do it, okay? David, foreshadowing Christ, could have killed Saul. He could have killed Saul. Could have. Was it his capacity to kill Saul? But he didn't. He said, God will avenge. God will avenge. There he is. David, foreshadowing the Messiah as to what was going to happen. Prophetic typology of the Messiah. We're not reading into the text things that are not there. We know very well that David foreshadows Jesus and that this Psalm is messianic. Same language in verse four as Psalm 22, of his being surrounded and people denouncing him and so forth. He will fall into the pit himself. Those who plan against him. They dug a pit before me. They themselves have fallen into the midst of it. Judas set Jesus up. But what happened to Judas? Whole thing blew up in his face. It's a type. Now, there's much we can say about the story at Angeli. Much. On our teaching on Psalm 23, we deal with the cave of Angeli in some depth, some detail. But let's begin with this. At the cave of Angeli is one of the three places, the others being in Samuel in, and in Chronicles and in one of the and in this Psalm. Okay, in the book of Psalms, sorry, where you have the phrase, touch not my anointed, touch not my anointed. And we see the way that that has been misused, particularly by con artist money preachers, declaring themselves to be the anointed and warning people not to speak against them, even though they are heretics and con artists. And we see pathetically ignorant people professing to be Christians who believe what they're saying, 
It seems to be scriptural to them. Touch not my anointed. Forget about that the word faith money preachers are teaching heresy. Forget about <laughs> that they're con men. Forget about that they're the false teachers and false prophets Jesus warned would come in the last days to deceive the elect. Forget about all that. Don't touch them. Don't touch God's anointed. And they believe that these signs and wonders these guys do, much of which is counterfeit or just leger de masse, sleight of hand, proves they're anointed. Well, King Saul actually was God's anointed. The prophet Samuel anointed him, and David was God's anointed. The prophet Samuel anointed him. No, David would not touch God's anointed, even though he could have. But did that stop David from declaring that Saul was a backslider and a murderer? Did it stop Samuel from declaring in the word of God for all eternity that Saul is a backslider and a murderer? He was a murderer, and then he went into the occult and the sin of necromancy, going to a witch, something he called Makshafut. He did all that. The high priest knew what he was. The prophet Samuel knew what he was. David knew what he was, and they said what he was, and the word of God contains their sayings. As we've said many times, touch not my anointed does not mean that you do not say what a corrupt, heretical leader is. If that is their standard, it means that David did touch God's anointed in the cave of Angeli. It means that the prophet Samuel did touch God's anointed. No, they did not kill him. They simply declared what he was. There is no problem with pointing out what T.D. Jakes is. There's no problem with pointing out what Kenneth Copeland or Joyce Meyer or Benny Hinn are. First of all, I would seriously challenge whether the aforementioned are God's anointed to begin with. But even if they were, <laughs> which can certainly be debated to say the very least, but even if they were, that's not what touch not my anointed means. No, David would let God deal with Saul. I had a case once. I'm going back to 1991. True story. Totally true story. Well known in England what happened. The Baptist Union under a, a guy named Bernard Green, who was the Baptist Union president, signed an agreement called Churches Together in England. And he was supported by the president of the Baptist Association in London. His name was Douglas McBain. And they agreed not to, not to evangelize Roman Catholics. I had been down 
uh, by Westminster Cathedral in London, evangelizing Roman Catholics on front of the cathedral. And the priests took the literature we were given to people, which was gospel literature, and they complained, saying, this violates the agreement. <laughs> I attended a Baptist church at the time. Well, I was told that I would not be really eligible to join the Baptist clergy when I finished seminary because of my position on the ecumenical issue. Meanwhile, Bernard Green retired and Douglas McBain came to power. And I got into a back and forth with Douglas McBain. And I said, wait a minute, you're not evangelizing Catholics. You signed an agreement saying you won't evangelize Catholics. They believe a different gospel. How can you justify not evangelizing them or getting into some kind of bed with people with a different gospel? I asked him. This was his answer to me. This was his answer. We have liberal, liberal Baptists, theologically liberal Baptists, who do not believe in the historicity of the resurrection or the virgin birth. We already have Baptists in the Baptist Union who don't believe the fundamental truths of the gospel or the scripture. So since we already have Baptists who don't believe those things, why shouldn't we have unity with Roman Catholics who do? Now, my response would be, well, why do you have people in the Baptist ministry who don't believe those things? Why don't you kick them out of the Baptist union? They're not Baptists. They're not even Christian. I got nowhere. But that was his response. My pastor got involved, good guy, more of an evangelist than the pastor, but he was pastoring the church at the time, we're still friends. He gets into it with McBain, and McBain says that this guy, the president of the Baptist Union, says to him, you're never going to change the Roman church. So he admits that. But, but if we get in with them, we can influence them. No, they're going to influence you. My reaction was, you get in bed with the Pope, the Pope is in bed with the Dalai Lama. This week, 30 years later, this week, the Baptist Union of Great Britain announced of its joint cooperative venture with the Islamic Council of Great Britain. It went from being ecumenical with Rome, given a few decades. Now it is interfaith with Islam. This was the Baptist Union. Now, a hundred years before me, <laughs> Charles Spurgeon warned what would happen to the Baptist Union. He saw it a hundred years before, I'm not so clever. Charles Spurgeon saw it a hundred years before I did and warned what it would come to. He was a Baptist. So in my debate with this president of the Baptist Union, I said, this violates what the Baptists historically have believed. And he said, what Baptists? I said, John Bunyan. I said, Charles Spurgeon. And he said, well, they disagreed with each other, didn't they? And I responded, 
not about Roman Catholicism. You want some quotes? Here's what Spurgeon said about Rome. Here's what John Bunyan said about Rome, what Charles Spurgeon said about Rome. He wouldn't deal with it. And he told my pastor that my pastor needs to be open-minded. <laughs> it was all about theocratic politics. It was not about biblical theology. The higher this individual climbed on the ladder theocratically, the more he declined theologically. And I didn't know it, but I found out he fell off the ladder and broke his neck right afterwards. Right afterwards, he was literally fixing his roof or something and he was climbing up a ladder onto his roof and he fell off the ladder and broke his neck and died. I was so angry at him. Remember, my mother was alive at that time. I had Catholic family trusting in scapulars and mass cards instead of in the blood of Jesus. I'm thinking Catholic people need to be evangelized. I was so angry at him. And he said, you're one of those who think we're trampling on the blood of the martyrs. Yes, I do. I was so angry. Oh, boy, was I angry. Thinking of my unsaved Catholic family, thinking of what happened when we were accosted for evangelizing, and they pointed to the agreement with the Baptist leadership not to witness to Catholics. Oh! My church... The church pulled out of the Baptist Union, fortunately. The pastor had integrity and right doctrine. Again, we're still friends. But I was angry. What could I do? What could I do? Go on the warpath against this guy? No. But I said what he was, and I said what he did. I publicly stated what he was and what he did but I didn't touch him. God's anointed, I guess, but God dealt with him. Remember Caiaphas, the high priest, the Hebrews anointed judges, kings, high priests, and prophets. He was anointed as a high priest. Caiaphas, completely corrupt man, but he had the position. And because he had the position, he prophesied, didn't he? He prophesied accurately. So King Saul was God's anointed. And even in his backslidden state, the scriptures ask, or report those who watched him asking, is Saul among the prophets? God can even speak through these wicked people, these backsliders, prophetically in a given situation. God can use them in a situation because of their office, not because of them. Oh, people were healed through this one and somebody was saved through that one. I don't question that somebody may have been healed or somebody may have been saved or there may have been an, an accurate prophecy. I don't question that. Caiaphas did it. He prophesied accurately when he was conspiring to have Jesus murdered. Saul did it. 
He did it when he was conspiring to have King David murdered. And it's against this background that this psalm was incredibly written. Taking what happened to David at the cave of Angeli, being in the cave, doomed, and coming out and God avenging his enemies. Again, foreshadowing Christ, but teaching a general truth and a general principle. Now, again, I myself love this particular chorus. I think it's really one of my favorite choruses in the Psalms. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens, you know. Let thy glory be over all the earth. Okay. It is a wonderful, wonderful chorus, and I love it. But it would seem as a chorus to stand in its own right. No, no. In its context. <laughs> it's praying worship. It's praying to God and worshiping God because he will bring his judgment upon those who have set a net for us, who've set a trap for us. It is something he's singing because of God's deliverance from the hand of the enemies, from the place of death, and celebrating an answer to imprecatory prayer, celebrating that God's judgment has fallen on those enemies. Remember Paul, he did me, Alexander did me much harm. The Lord will repay him. I'm not going to repay him. The Lord will, but he did me much harm. So we continue into Psalm 58. Again, for the choir director, said to Al Tashbeth, a miktam of David. Do you indeed speak righteousness, O gods? Do you judge uprightly, O sons of men? No, in heart you work unrighteousness. On earth you weigh out the violence of your hands. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Let no one <clears throat> ever say, man is not born fallen. <clears throat> right from the womb, we're estranged from God. Right from the womb, from the time of birth, we are liars. We are liars. Every time we say, I am a good person, we lie. No, we are bad people whom the Lord has redeemed. Anything good about us is his righteousness in us and through us imputed. All men are liars. As soon as Adam fell, <laughs> that was it. As soon as Eve fell, that's it. Every human being is a liar. Every human being is wicked from the womb. Every human being is estranged from God from birth. Therefore, of course, we must have second birth. 
That's the only way. In other words, birth. It didn't work the first time. You must be born again. It didn't work the first time. You must be born again. Verse 4. They have venom like the venom of a serpent. Like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so that it does not hear the voice of the charmers or a skillful caster of spells. We did a teaching once on the verse about charming the serpent, about dealing with spiritual seduction. The serpent is, of course, Satan's mode as deceiver. And the venom that he injects into people. People are injected with a satanic venom. Horrible. Like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears. They don't want to hear the truth. They do not want to be charmed. They don't want to be charmed. How do I explain this? The serpent entices by its bite, by its venom. There are two kinds of venom, essentially, from serpents, hemotoxic and neurotoxic, those which act directly on the central nervous system, causing paralysis, and those which poison the blood and immediately the cardiovascular system. The serpent's there. People are naturally deceived. Unsaved people have been deceived by the serpent. Everybody's deceived by the serpent. The serpent must be charmed. God outcons the con artist. Satan tricks with lies. God tricks with truth. Satan tricks with lies. God tricks with truth. Oh God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, oh Lord. Dealing with the unsaved. Let them now flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Can you imagine an arrow with no tip, with no point on it? What's it going to do? might sting, but it can't penetrate. Can't penetrate the epidermis. It's going to sting somebody, but it's not going to pierce anybody. They'll shoot the words. They'll shoot the words, but their ammunition will be duds. The arrows, what they speak, will be duds. Satan will try to work through these people. They'll shoot the arrows, but the headless shafts, it just won't work. Let them be as a snail which melts away as it goes along, like miscarriages of a woman which never see the sun. Unsaved people, people who do not get saved, would be better off if they were never born. Unsaved people would be better off 
had they died in their mother's womb through natural miscarriage. Before your pots can feel the fire of thorns, he will sweep them away with the whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. And men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on earth. Now, obviously, the first judgment we delight in is the judgment of Satan. We have a recorded teaching on our website available called the judgment of Satan. Everything he ever did to you, everything he ever did to me, from temptation to persecution to opposition to just making things go wrong, Satan counterfeits providence, doesn't he? When God practically intervenes in the affairs of life for his purpose, Peter tells us, don't be surprised, brethren, when a fiery ordeal comes upon you as if something strange was happening. The devil can make these things happen. Oh, boy. Those things are going to haunt him forever. And we are going to see him eternally tormented for every one of those things. We will relive what happened. Not the pain, but the justice and judgment against the enemy. Everything he's ever done to anybody, and particularly anything he's ever done to any believer, and what he did to Christ above all, will be to his eternal torment. And when we witness his eternal torment, when we see it happening, it will be a cause for rejoicing, of celebrating. There's a t-shirt I've seen in the United States. Haven't seen it over this side of the Atlantic, but I've seen it in America that some Christians wear. And it says, when Satan reminds you of your past, that is the old creation, the old man, the old woman. When, when the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. <laughs> I like that shirt. That's a great shirt. I wish they had it in triple extra large. <laughs> well, let's look at this. Obviously, it's the serpent. Obviously, it's Satan, okay? The snake will be thrown into the fire, just like in Acts 27 and 28, and in the book of Revelation. The serpent will be thrown into the fire. Who's going to feel sorry for it? Nobody. Men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judged on earth. It is only the bottom line that counts. Now let's understand about these serpents. Another teaching we have on what this psalm is referring to is called the Nechushtan, the Nechushtan from the Hebrew Nechoshet, meaning bronze, bronze. It's referred to in John's gospel as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. The son of man will be lifted up. He who knew no sin became sin 
We look upon him who atoned for our sin on the cross. He'd be lifted up. He was crucified. And that's a picture of the serpent being crucified. Only he was not the serpent. Yet, he was identified as if he was because he took our sin. Our self-delusion, our self-deception, our auto-seduction. Okay, We lie to ourselves. We're liars from our mother's wombs. This comes from Satan, from a serpent. And so we become liars ourselves with a serpent's venom in our veins. The only way not to be cast into the fire with the serpent is to look upon Jesus, who was killed as if he were one in our place. Again, I would point you to the teaching Nehushtan on the symbolism of the serpent. Um, but that's the idea of it. It's pointing to Christ. Now let's look further at this particular psalm. Again, there is a rejoicing when God judges our enemies. Certainly the demonic and satanic. That's a given. But does it end there? No, it does not. Look with me, please, to the book of Revelation, chapter 5. I'm sorry, make it chapter 6. Verse 10. And these martyrs who went through this cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will thou refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth, not just on Satan? but on those who have stopped up their ears like a cobra and rejected the truth. How long will you refrain from avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed even as they had been should be completed, and then the sixth seal is broken. With that, God says, enough. The rapture and resurrection take place, and then the seventh seal is opened, and the wrath of God begins. That will be a source of delight, of judgment. The judgment of the world of those wicked who persecuted us, persecuted the children of God, and who tried to destroy Israel and the Jews. Their judgment and destruction will be something that we will celebrate. Now, obviously, it is much better if those people get saved. Much better. They're born fallen like we are. They cannot help the fact that they were born human. 
But when you plug up your ears like a cobra, you become one. You become like one. It was an intentional act of their own. They didn't want to hear the truth. Now, before salvation, we were no different than no better than any of them. But the snake was charmed. By the grace of God, we did not believe the lie, but the truth. And by the grace of God, he who knew no sin became sin. Jesus was lifted up like a serpent, the Nehushtan. Now remember, those serpents were biting the people. Remember, they were biting the people. You had to look on the Nehushtan. If we don't look on the crucified Christ, the serpents are going to get you. The only way to be immune from the serpents is to look on the crucified Christ. They may shoot their arrows, but it's just a shaft with no point. All it can do is sting, but it can't kill. It can't penetrate. Their words mean nothing to us as new creations. Once you hold to the truth, the lie becomes impotent. It has no capacity to hurt us as long as we hold to the truth. Everybody is going to be taken in by a serpent. From birth, people are deceived by the devil. Everybody is taken in by a serpent. The question is, which serpent will it be? The one with the venom? Or will it be the Nehushtan? These references to serpents must be understood in relation to all the rest the Bible says about serpents, including Revelation 12, prophetically for the end times. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. <laughs> That's quite a thing. Going to wash our feet in the blood of the wicked. When Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he said you should wash each other's feet. That's talking about refreshing each other from our contact with the world. That's different. When kingdom comes, when the Lord returns, the world will have been conquered. The blood of our persecutors <laughs> will simply be a soap. Men will say, surely there's a reward for the righteous. Surely there's a God who judges on earth. Well, there is a God who judges on earth. And there is a reward for the righteous. Now, again, these Psalms can be correctly read in their own right. The Sitzimnebin, the setting, the situation of King David. They can be understood that way. And they can show how God will bring us through times of trial and difficulty and persecution, things like that. It's fine to read the psalm that way. That's part of what it means. But it's only the first step. The imprecatory psalms of David, where he's the victim of the wicked, and he calls on God against them. 
in those imprecatory psalms, David is a type of Christ. Oh, Jesus just wants to love. Oh, yeah. He said he has a fire and he wishes it was already kindled. He's angry. He's very angry. At one time, God wanted to wipe out all Israel. Moses talked him out of it. That's the picture. God wants to wipe out the human race, but Jesus talks him out of it. He's angry. The fullness of the Father dwells in Jesus bodily. He was angry. I wish the fire was already kindled. Oh, but where is the love? Where is the grace? That's for us. It's not for the world. The only reason it hasn't happened already was because of his love and his grace. He's giving people a chance to get saved. That's it. It's only because of his love and his grace he's putting up with the human race for the sake of those who will repent and believe. Otherwise, he'd be done with it. He's willing to put up with the many for the sake of the few. And if we're born again, we have to realize what a blessing and privilege it is, indescribable, to be among the few. The rest of them, not only are they poisoned by the serpent's venom, they behave like serpents themselves. They're going to denounce us. They're going to try to surround us. They will shoot their arrows and their tongue is like a sword. Why wouldn't they be? That's the nature of the serpent. But judgment day is coming. I look at these things. I've seen things on the news and I know there's many Christians who feel, believe, see it. They, they, they become emotionally enraged as, as I do. When by law you must teach five and six-year-old children homosexuality and lesbianism are normal. And then if they say it's not normal, they're being bigoted, and you got to teach that to kids in school, at little kids. And when I see these so-called educators and politicians in Hollywood pushing this agenda, if that's what you want to be, go be that, but leave the kids alone. Now there's a big battle in the Supreme Court, obviously I'm praying, and I would urge you to do so. First step towards reversing the genocidal atrocity of Roe v. Wade. Pray that Roberts doesn't betray biblical values as he usually does, as he did with the same-sex marriage. Pray that God stands and steadies his hand. You can't trust Roberts. He's an not to be political, but he's proven himself repeatedly with the whole gay marriage thing. He's a bad man. He's a bad man. But Mr. Trump, before he left office, he tried to stack the Supreme Court with pro-life people. Not necessarily believers, of the Catholics, basically, but pro-life in principle. I pray it goes that way. I remember a woman journalist, a television journalist, when Donald Trump got elected, said, she said on, on television, and she was laughing, hurry up and get your abortions now, ladies. And it was a joke to her. A joke. Killing a kid is a joke. There's people in front of the Supreme Court protesting, demanding the right, it's, it's our right to kill the baby. 
there's nothing more antithetical to the maternal nature of women than doing that. It's just completely, it just, when God's judgment comes on those people, and it's already on Ruth Ginsburg, when his judgment comes on those people, it'll be a cause for celebration. Now, obviously, we greatly prefer that those people would repent and get saved. That instead of riding with the hunters, they would run with the foxes till victory comes. Yet, the reality is few of them will. They don't want it. They don't want to hear the truth. You can show the obvious medical and scientific truth about homosexuality, about sodomy, about abortion. You can show the truth. Embryos reacting, reacting to stimuli early in gestation. It, you know, show them the scientific facts. Plug their ears like a cobra. Show them what God says in his word. And plug their ears like a cobra. Their arrogance, their persistence in wickedness. I would do anything to see those people repenting and get saved. But few, few of them will. We know that. Let us understand something. While it is our preference and God's preference that they would repent and believe, when they won't, their judgment will be a cause for celebration. Here's the babies you killed. Here's what you did to these children. Better a millstone was tied around your neck than do what you did. Cause for celebration. And precatory prayer is real. Calling God's judgment on the enemies of Christ and of his people the children of God, calling God's judgment down on these enemies is scriptural prayer. Of course we pray they would get saved. Much better. But once this cobra stuffs its ears, they're not going to get saved. They can't hear. Like a deaf cobra that stops up its ears so it does not hear. It does not hear the voice of a charmer or a skillful caster of spells. The Lord can be quite charming. <laughs> He's quite skillful. When somebody has been charmed of the Lord, it is the Holy Spirit. When somebody has been charmed by the serpent, it is a demonic spirit. How charming! There are politicians who are godless who seem very charming. There's people in the media who seem very charming. There's people in the organized religious establishment, like the Pope. They seem very charming. Yeah. Their charm is venom. However, when we've been convicted of sin and by the grace of God know it and we repent, the serpent loses. We've been charmed by the Spirit of God. 
we realize how charming God is, truly charming, in truth, in righteousness, in holiness, and in love. Quite a lot in these Psalms. A lot in these Psalms for David, but a lot in these Psalms for us. Yes, they are about David, but as we ponder them, we realize they're about Christ. Yes, they were for David and his followers, but they are for the followers of Christ also. It had a wonderful meaning at that time for David, but the meaning is no less wonderful for us now, if not more so. He was only David, noble, but only David. We have Jesus, the son of David. Isn't the Lord charming? Thank you so much for listening. God bless. We will continue this week.